Hi, welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of the Pictures Out There podcast series with Lee Stewart and Dave Fogelman. Today, we are back to our periodic topic, Caring About the Future. In this podcast, we'll explore some of the essays from the 2020 book, Aftershock. Lee and Dave will discuss some of the ideas presented by thought leaders as they discuss the future and what it can mean for our lives. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Thank you, Candy, for that kind introduction. I'm Dave. And I'm Lee. And we welcome you back to the Pictures Out There podcast series. As Candy stated in our opener, we are coming back to a topic that we discuss periodically across these podcasts. It's caring about the future. And today, we're going to discuss some of the essays from a wonderful book published in 2020. It is titled Aftershock by the editor, John Schroeder. Today, we're going to talk about a few of the essays from that book, Aftershock, and note some of their key themes and how they intersect and connect to many of the pictures out there concepts. And along the way, we're going to provide our own thoughts and reactions to these themes. So when you need to abbreviate one of the essayist quotes, we've been very, very careful to do that in context and taking great care not to change the meaning of the points and perspectives from the original essays. All right, Lee, we ready to roll? Let's do it. Okay, so to start us off, Vikram Mancharamani. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Navigating Uncertainty is Vikram's essay. So a little bit about him. He's a lecturer at Harvard, has MIT and Yale degrees, and has been twice highlighted by LinkedIn as their number one top voice for money, finance, and economics. Okay, a few credentials in all of that, I mm-hmm, guess. Mm-hmm. In his essay, Vikram provides examples of art foreshadowing reality. And on the other hand, future predictions being completely inaccurate. A lot of times I think there's interest in, oh, you're a futurist. You know, Well, tell me what's going to happen. Yes. Tell me what to predict. Right, right. Who should yeah. I bet on? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the, the topics in these essays and in other things that these folks will talk about are kind of, well, it looks like this is happening. These are the trends. And other times, which is more of our bent, it's like, well, let's make the future what we want it yes, to be. Right. We understand these trends. There's momentum for these things happening, but we have the opportunity to impact that through pictures and other things that we do. Yes. But Vikram provides some really interesting examples here. A Titanic-type boat and catastrophe story was written 14 years before the actual Titanic event. Man. You know, yeah. interesting. Jules Verne, most of us are aware of Jules Verne and his wonderful writing, foreshadowed submarines in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. A lot of us have either read that book or saw the movie eons ago. Yes. On the other hand, books were written by respected experts that presaged population explosion problems and 1990s economic crises that never, never happened. happened. You know, and I remember that uh, certainly in the 70s, there was one very popular book about population explosion that was very impactful. I actually had a class with that professor when I was in college. And then obviously everything that happened with uh, .com and the internet explosion altered the economic realities of the 90s. Then Vikram says, the blunt reality is that accuracy cannot and should not be the criterion upon which to evaluate thinking about the future. 
It's hmm. an interesting mm-hmm. comment to make. Mm-hmm. Yes. So our pictures out there model says don't let any worry about accuracy or prediction get in the way of each of us proactively dictating the future, our future, as much as we can. Don't worry about being Being right. right. That seems very affirming of what we're suggesting in these podcasts in the book. We think we're in sync there. Caring about the future through creating your own pictures and then taking action toward those pictures. So leave the concern about being right. Does that get in the way of doing our own pictures or learning new things? Or how how does it get in the way of of all that wonderfulness? So I think many of us, most of us, perhaps all of us, are conditioned that we have to problem solve in a correct, proper, right way. There is an answer, a right answer, that we should all strive for, right? Some of that's the education. uh, Yeah, a product of our education system, right? Mm Mm-hmm. How it's limiting is, well, I can't dream this kind of a picture because it might encompass things that today don't exist, or it might represent things that would be going counter to the existing paradigms, right? So I'm just not even going to go there because I don't think it's possible to implement or realize or achieve that picture. There are too many current reality problems in the way of it. It kind of feels like an image comes to mind as you're talking of you know, being sat down into a desk at school mm-hmm. and the teacher saying, okay, here's the problem for you to go solve and you're probably not going to be able to solve it. Correct. Yeah. You're not going to be right. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. Or, Good luck to you. Yeah. Or you're going to get partial credit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. And a lot of us will go, well, why would I even do that? Why would I even do that? That sounds frustrating. It sounds demoralizing. And what we're saying is, well, that is the big problem yes. to go solve. That's that's why we're here. Yes. Yeah. So right. uh, yes. so very interesting there. Yeah. So at the same time, being satisfied with known ignorance or clearly false conclusions or beliefs, well, that's equally unacceptable. Yeah. So what would you say, what do we mean by known ignorance? Yeah, we have to make our best attempt to just do our best with all of that. And we've talked about, again, there's the the challenge of how much do I go learn and research before taking action towards something that I believe in, toward a picture of mine? At what point do I just go act? At what point do I, do I not? And it's all artwork. Mm-hmm. And I think the beauty of what this essay is saying is do your best with all of that. Mm-hmm. Don't get focused on whether or not you're right or not. If you, if you get too focused on that, you'll never act. Exactly. Yeah. It'll be paralyzing. Yeah. So another essay from the wonderful book Aftershock was written by Poe Bronson and Arvind Gupta. And the title of that essay is The New Model of Futurism. Poe is the strategy director and Arvind is the founder of IndieBio, the world's largest biotech program-based seed fund. IndieBio funds startups that can impact a billion people or address markets of more than a billion dollars. Is that billion with a B? That's billion with a B. Okay. Okay. Here's a quotation from that essay, The New Model of Futurism. It states, The world is at war between people who like change and people who don't like change. I kind of partially agree with that and partially would say change is inevitable. Mm-hmm. There's no way change isn't going to happen. to happen. So I don't know if it's liking or not liking it. It's 
accepting it. It is or a not reality. Accepting it. It's not a reality that can be avoided. <laughs> yeah. It is happening. So yeah, whether yeah. we choose to like it or not is rather yeah. irrelevant. I theoretically I happen to like change myself. Yes. But I could theoretically accept that there is change and not necessarily like it. like it that much, but I could at least accept that it's going to happen. Yes. So this new model battle is between longing for the past versus having a belief in the future. Mm. So, quote, the stronger our societal memory bias toward the past and the weaker our belief in the future, the more the future slows down. Mm. The future and the past are at war and the past is very well armed. Mm. It has television networks. It has religious ideology. It has lobbyists and flags to wave. We live at a time when the future's inevitability cannot be taken for granted. The faster the future comes into our lives, the fiercer the rebellion against it. End quote. And we are seeing that rebellion future audience. We're seeing that rebellion as we speak. Yes. Here in the year 2022, we are seeing an incredible rebellion against looking at the future and trying to shape a new future that is not an attempt to base that on the past. The past, yeah. We're yeah. in a time of retrenchment yeah. where many, many people are finding comfort in past values, yeah. past traditions, customs, belief systems, and trying to get back there. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, our point of view is there is no going back. And, you know, you're going to be creating some kind of dystopian future by trying to recreate a past that can't be. That cannot be recreated. recreated. And oh, by the way, we wouldn't want to recreate anyway. The people who are thinking the past was so great are people who were advantaged mm -hmm. by that in a way that we don't believe is a, is a uh, way to move forward into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's look at another quote from the essay, The New Model of Futurism. This one states, Technologies are only going to make a huge impact on the world if enough people fight for them. Hmm, have you ever thought about fighting what, for technology? What a curious phrase. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this one struck us because usually people, when they speak about technology, is, oh, it's this, it's just inevitable, it's just taking us, we have no control over it, it's just, you know, doing all of that. What a curious thing for a thought leader on the future, two thought leaders, to say, it's only going to make a huge impact on the world if enough people fight, fight for, for them. And so clearly these two folks see the opportunity with technology based on the, the biotech program yes. that they've uh, seeded and that they're funding. And they're saying it's not a given that mm -hmm. the world is going to be advantaged by all of the opportunities with technology. People are going to have to fight for them. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's worth reflecting on. Absolutely. So our perspective on all this is the world has always been a dangerous place. Sadly, it's always been a violent place, an unfair place, an uncaring place for many of its inhabitants. It has been a messy place throughout human history. But because of advances in communication and now access to information, we know about the current and present dangers more than people ever knew about dangers in the past. We have visibility mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. But if we really learn about the past without the filters of sanitizing the past, we would suggest that in total the world has never 
been better than it is right now. We really believe that. So all you doom and gloomers, our point of view is that we've never been in a better place than we are today. Mm -hmm. While understanding that there are negative waves where a region or a country may regress Mm -hmm. or perhaps on an individual issue, here are some examples. Climate change, racism in all its forms, Mm -hmm. women's rights, any number of inequities that still exist. These create a new risk for the globe as a whole. And we would say that the world as a whole generally gets better with time. Mm. Really? Yep. Even with all of our current problems, violence, inequality, apathy, fear, negative biases, on and on, we believe that the future can be better than the past. So hope. Pictures out there in our podcasts are very hopeful about the future. Yep. We see incredible potential for the future just as the author of these essays do. But we have to live our dreams and we have to act upon them with a better future in mind, Mm -hmm. with hope. Otherwise, if we don't, it will not happen. We will never realize that better future. Okay, so our next essay is by Aaron Frank, and it's entitled, After Future Shock Came Life Online, Growing Up in a Web-Connected Society. Now, Aaron was born in 1989, and he's a researcher, writer, and lecturer at Singularity University in Silicon Valley, which is a wonderful institution that I've had the opportunity to have some exposure to. He has a great quote in his writing here. I am part of a generation of internet natives. Reflecting on the internet is a difficult task. It's like trying to describe what breathing air is like. (laughs) The internet is hard to describe because it's simply everywhere. Internet natives like me have grown up in a world defined by ever-increasing connectivity. Now we're seeing the early stages of a world where not just humans, but machines link up and connect as well. Hmm. Machines teaching machines will stimulate the fastest pace of innovation our world has yet seen. We talked about that a little bit with AI, and it's like, hope everybody's getting comfortable with that. Machines teaching machines. It's going to speed all of this up. Yes. That's not a quote. That's a comment. Back to Aaron. Connectivity brings dangers too. The internet can all too quickly become a tool of isolation. Belief systems can be the customer, and platforms are all too willing to serve up personalized and self-reinforcing feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Mainly, the internet has collapsed the distance between me and the people I care about and the things I love. Mm Mm-hmm. So I love in this in this set of quotes here the two sides of the coin, right, with connectivity and from somebody who has never, doesn't remember a life without the Internet. Right. And uh, so from our perspective, we've talked about connectivity. One of our ideals that we've described before is we're the same and we're unique. The Internet has an unprecedented capability to give life and energy to our own personal uniqueness. We're unique. And to give unprecedented connectivity. To all of humanity, we're the same. As Aaron writes, it also has the capability, though, to isolate us with groupthink, which we've also talked about, based on our group affiliations. And we've previously discussed some of the potential dangers of those group affiliations. The Internet can actually serve to help us resist new knowledge by ensuring we only receive info or perspectives that we already know or believe. There's that self-reinforcing feedback loop. There we go. Right. It all depends on what we do to manage our engagement with the Internet and how we use it. And our perspective is that Aaron's essay directly relates to our podcasts on biases 
And on ideal-based input and output, Aaron's essay directly relates to our podcast where we suggest using our ideals to filter the input we receive as well as to filter our own output. So let's reflect on that point for just a moment. If we do a good job of identifying and articulating for ourselves our ideals, they can become a very powerful filtering mechanism to prevent getting into self-reinforcing feedback loops. Hey, only expose me to the information that affirms and confirms my beliefs. Right. I don't want to hear anyone else's perspectives. What value would there be in that? Yeah. Yeah. So our ideals can provide a filter that negates against that. Absolutely. So another essay from the collection in Aftershock is from Adrian Mayer, Storytelling and Artificial Intelligence. Mm. Adrian is a research scholar in the classics department at Stanford, a prolific author, and a National Book Award nonfiction finalist. Here's a quote from her essay. The rise of a robot artificial intelligence culture no longer seems far-fetched. Wait, wait, wait. A robot artificial intelligence culture. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. So (laughs) connections that, that machines are making are creating its own community. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So as she states, this is no longer far-fetched. This is occurring. AI's human inventors and mentors are already building the robot AI culture's logic, its moral values, Mm. and emotions. Mm. As human minds and bodies and cultural outpourings are enhanced and shaped by technology and become more machine-like, perhaps robots might become infused with something like what we would call humanity. We are approaching what some might call the new dawn of robo-humanity. Hmm. Wow. Our perspective, our picture on AI, and our new golden rule. Which we've shared before. Yeah, which states, Do unto other people, animals, plants, and everything else that exists on this planet, as we would wish, intellectually superior intelligences to do unto us. That's a wonderful new golden rule in our opinion. This fits beautifully in the context of Adrian's essay. Mm -hmm. So how much will the degree that we are human or machine matter if both humans and machines live by the same ideals? Whoa. Yeah. I mean, what's the utility of separation there? Over time, there will be no separation. Particularly, I mean, you think of all sorts of things, Lee, where, you know, human beings have more and more machine parts, parts. I guess you would say, that right. get put in our bodies right. to prolong our life. Mm-hmm. You have that happening. You have nanobots that are going to become part of medicine that will be in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And you start, and in the meantime, we're trying to impart a culture mm-hmm. to robots or to AI that we believe is optimal. Yes. Yeah, you, you start seeing this merging happening and this interaction happening, and it's very interesting. Yeah, I want to return just a phrase from Adrienne Mayer's essay where she goes, AI's human inventors, we get that part, but here's the phrase that stuck out to me, and mentors. Oh. oh that's a different deal. I invented machine learning, but now I have to impart values to it and shepherd it toward a new form of what we'll call consciousness. And that mentorship is where a lot of our thought about a new golden rule came, where there's some point 
where whether it is what we would call sentience or again part of this culture where it's like wait a minute we're mm-hmm. trying to reconcile what you're describing as a culture to us and reconcile that with what you guys actually do. Yeah, so your talk is one thing yeah. and your walk looks yeah. like something different. Not to exactly us. walking the talk, yet you're expecting us to walk the talk right. perfectly. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So don't we already expect more from AI, as you were just kind of suggesting, than we do from each other? Ah. In the way of ideals and kindness and mutual respect, hey, we want you to walk this talk even though we don't, okay? So what does that suggest about changes that humanity might need to make? And at one point, if you want to think of AI as a species or a race, who's actually superior? Mm -hmm. Who's actually walking the talk more consistently? Mm -hmm. Are they Mm -hmm. doing that in the future or are we? Right, yeah. Got up our game. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to another essay by Grady Booch. It's called The 801, 801st Lifetime. Grady is the chief scientist, and all of these descriptions we're doing are as of 2020. So Grady and some of these others, I imagine, they're off to new things. Yes, you know, very probably. That's, that's their nature. Yeah. But at the time of the book, Grady is the chief scientist for software engineering at IBM Research. So here's a quote from Grady. Society has come to embrace disruption as something desirable, something that entrepreneurs seek to create, to which businesses aspire to reinvent themselves. We seek to use it to propel ourselves into a more perfect future, as if disruption were our societal gravitational slingshot. Hmm. So our question in the context of pictures out there, are our disruptions that's great he's describing are disruptions and our efforts to accelerate change even more are they based on a worthwhile future purpose on a picture or ideals Mm -hmm. and we're asking that because i think too often we see those attempts at disruption are absolutely not based on any notion of a more desirable future or a picture ideals they're based on personal power objectives or greed or something like that. Wealth creation, creating in-groups and out-groups. Yeah. So we see too often that we think they're based on individual group pursuits that don't have a societal common good in mind or only have a selfish or competitive outcome in mind that really doesn't move the world forward in any kind of meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So here's another quote from Grady. We will change and we will evolve. Indeed, it is fair to say that we will co-evolve with the digital lives we ourselves have created, perhaps yielding a digital successor to To our our species. species. So AI and other robot and machine learning things, he is describing as digital lives. Yes, yes. And reading that phrase, Lee conjures up immediately the image to me of chimpanzees as they observe human beings going, you guys know where you came from, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <clears throat> you understand that you came from us. Right. And do you do you understand that connection mm-hmm. that you all can create something and you may not stay in the place that you've been in the order of things on earth? Yes. Good. Yeah. So our perspective in question, to what degree can we influence the trajectory of AI? The potential of AI frequently gets labeled as either the savior of the world or the likely future cause of human extinction. 
In what ways can we influence what happens between humans and AI in the future? Yeah. And we obviously, from the picture that we've shared in the past, we believe that we do that by taking it on, head on, truthfully with ourselves and creating a wonderful, wonderful relationship with AI by upping our game. Yes. So let's direct our attention now to another essay, this by a man named Alan Kay. The title of the essay is The Shock of the Invisible. Hmm. Alan is an award-winning systems scientist. So climate change is given as one example of something that's invisible, right? Why invisible when normal is seemingly in plain sight? Mm. Well, because we accommodate to and believe in so thoroughly is what is constant around us to the degree that it disappears into what we regard as reality. And hence, reality is normal. Mm. Now, Marshall McLuhan's quip back in the day for this was, I don't know who discovered water, but it was not a fish. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We've talked about these things that are so incremental, and I think that combined with humans' capacity to actually deal with change better than we like to think causes these things to happen where things are invisibly changing. Mm Mm-hmm. So our perspective, as it relates to change management, given our belief that people are actually much faster to process change than we generally recognize or appreciate, does the speed with which we process change and turn it into normal, does that actually work against our ability to see what's really going on? Hmm. Does it create the habit of us constantly reacting and processing change so that it feels normal instead of focusing on taking a proactive Mm. pictures approach and acting toward our desired future. So I think what we're saying here is, as a species, we're really good at reacting. Yeah. So how can we be better at proacting? Yeah. How does a strong... Reacting and assimilating. Yeah, reacting and assimilating. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and, And directing that to a more desirable future. Yeah. So how does having a strong and positive spiritual life experience help us see the invisible? Ah. So a lot of people call that faith, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we can have faith in a great many things that are not in the spiritual realm, right? I have faith that if we put our minds to it, we can begin to resolve climate change issues, et cetera. We lots of times will describe, you know, the ability of kind of pulling out of life a little bit. A lot of times when people meditate or they have a, a point of reflection in their days or in their week and that they say how much that helps them, well, it's extracting yourself out of the physical life experience. Yes. And you start seeing things. Mm-hmm. You think about things. You observe. You reflect on what you've... And you're able to then see the invisible mm-hmm. lots of times when you devote time to that spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. So let's close by asking these questions that you've heard us ask numerous times before. What are your pictures? What are your perspectives, your ideals? And importantly, what is your influence to use? Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us today. As always... Feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures. <laughs>